Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. And today, as always, we're going to dive headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. And today, we're going to continue the series, as we have been, uh, which we're going to lead us into the philosophical background that drives our academic mindset today. You'll recall in episode 62 that we reviewed uh, the start and the results of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. And last week, we moved into the 1600s uh, to around 1650 or so. We ended with a man named Baron de Montesquieu. And this was to discuss the Thirty Years' War and the emerging scientific field, uh, as well as some of these new philosophies that were willing to question the idea uh, of God. And today, it's going to be the late 1600s with more of a look on the nature of the government and a political science view. And we're going to wrap up right around 1715. We're going to discuss the widespread popularity of John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and also the rise of King Louis XIV, who really is one of, if not the greatest king in the history of kings. This will eventually help us decipher the background for the crime of the century. So one of the best things to come out of really a combination of the Thirty Years' War and the emergent scientific thought and theory was the idea that in philosophy and in natural thought you had to prove everything that you were saying by the natural law. You couldn't just say because the king said so. Uh, and this is known as empiricism, that if you can reasonably prove in your natural law and natural world that what you're saying is based on things that we can all discernibly see, a truth, then what you're saying has credence. And this really makes, it elevates a philosophical discussion because it, the ideas discussed are not just the will of kings or the will of whatever political force somebody is advocating for. It is based on something that is apolitical and it's a truth that exists whether or not you have an opinion about it is the best way to put it in the modern parlance. And a man who based what I think is the best political philosophy uh, and best politically uh, minded essay I guess is more what it was less than a book was a man named John Locke. Now John Locke uh, existed in the late 1600s as a tutor for uh, very wealthy nobles. Uh, he even tutored uh, William of Orange or uh, William III in England, uh, his heir, his son, and his uh, descendants. So John Locke was a man who understood what he was discussing. He was a smart man. He was widely recognized uh, within the United Kingdom and 
even uh, even by the French in the uh, French philosophical field, John Locke was seen as somebody who drove home the English ethos. And now for more on the English ethos, we're doing uh, a series uh, connecting the dots, which dives into it a little bit, uh, but that of course uh, focus more, focuses more on the history behind that. Now, the idea that each and every human being has value and that, that life itself has great value and purpose and that we each have, as the founders would put it, certain inalienable rights that are given to us by the Creator, that is not invented by John Locke. He did not come up with that idea. We'll get to that in a second. But he took that idea that rights are not granted by the government or by the kings, but they're granted by God. And whether or not the government says so, it exists. That the right to, as Locke would say, life, liberty, and property, not the pursuit of happiness, Locke said life, liberty, and property, because we can empirically see these things acted out in nature. Because each and every uh, seed that, that, that wins in its Dar Darwinian race really rises up and becomes a great big oak tree that that plant, that seed, has the right to life, or at least the right to become what it is supposed to be. We can see this all around us in the animal kingdom, in the natural world. We can scientifically prove that things, when given the opportunity, will manifest into whatever they're supposed to become. And in fact, the entire idea of evolution is based on that, that, that there's a starting point and things grow into being something. That is the idea behind the right to life and why life is valuable, growing into a purpose and maturing. Now the second is the right to liberty. Now this one, I might, we're actually going to shelve uh, for a second because that's going to tie in with the other uh, philosoph that we're going to discuss before we get into uh, King Louis XIV. And the last one is the right to property. And this one is a little bit harder to see empirically. But when we take a little deeper look, it's actually not so difficult. So the right to property, the right to ownership, the right to dominion is exhibited in the fact that human beings have, for the most part, been given stewardship uh, of nature and of uh, the earth in general. We have the ability through mathematics, as we've discussed in uh, later episodes, we have the ability with mathematics to move and shift and change the world. I mean, uh, just for uh, a comparison, Isaac Newton, who was a contemporary of John Locke and was living at the, at the time that we're discussing, Isaac Newton helped 
NASA scientists get to the moon. Now, Isaac Newton had little more than a telescope and little more than the notes that he scratched down on his little piece of paper. But uh, obviously he's a genius, but by the same standards, he was living in a, in a time period where, you know, there, there was no automatic calculations. There was no computers. There was not even electric light. It was a world lit only by fire, and he took us to the moon. He took us to the moon through mathematics. He took us to the moon through his natural right to exert himself over the world and to shift and to move things in such a way to benefit others. Therefore, we can say that each and every human being has the right to stewardship over what is his. The other aspect is that human beings have the right to their own labor. That because each and every life is worth something, as we've discussed, each and every one can manifest themselves and become something. Each and every man is entitled to his own labor, the fruits of that labor, which then can be used to purchase private property. Now, it doesn't always mean real estate. The, the, the pen you have in your pocket, if you bought it and it's yours, that's your property. Your car, your house, anything you can think of that you've purchased with your own money is yours. Now, you only make money by bringing value to someone else or a corporation. Some people are, are entrepreneurial and they are paid just by people they meet and some people are paid by working an office job. Regardless, they bring value to others and therefore are compensated for it because of their labor. It means something. As a result, we all have the right to life. We all have the right to property. Now, the other thing that John Locke mentioned and again, this goes uh, more heavily into our Magna Carta segment on connecting the dots. But one of the things he mentioned was that a people can only be ruled by a government that they consent to. There has to be a general willingness of the public to accept the legitimacy of a government. That somebody comes in with a, a force of arms and declares himself the ruler of a kingdom, the people will and oftentimes have respond with open revolt and open rebellion. The legitimacy of the government, therefore, to John Locke does not come down to a divine right, but rather a government that is anointed, as in the people accept its legitimacy in exercising the government's rights. Now, of course, if you're also following Lockean theory, the government has really three to four major purposes 
and these are the only purposes, to sustain a military, to enforce legal contracts, and to make sure the mail runs on time and locks stay. Now, that last one may even be obsolete in the U.S. here with FedEx and UPS and all that stuff. And that's another topic for another day, but regardless, Locke thought that that was the only purpose for the government or the only necessity for the government. He was a staunch believer in a republic and a more so democratic republic. He is our political grandfather, if we accept that Thomas Jefferson is our political father. Now, the last thing before we get uh, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is a contemporary of Locke, and the idea of, of liberty, we're going to discuss just a little bit about the idea of laws, and again, how this is, this is really attacking the idea of the divine right of kings to rule, of course, in, in these philosophers' days, the uh, majority of Europe was ruled by kings. Obviously, you had the, the Dutch was more of a, a republic, and England was a constitutional republic, but regardless, the constitutional monarchy, I'm sorry, but the ideas behind the laws or laws that are enacted by government is twofold. One, that the king or ruler is subjected to the laws that he writes. Now this seems obvious to you and I, but back in, in, in these days, in the, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, that was not always the case. You had uh, a great scandal much later in France, this is the 1750s and 60s, where, uh, and this is where we get the term rubber stamp, where essentially uh, you had this government agency that was supposed to keep in check the power of the king, but the king just kind of replaced whoever he wanted in that agency. And so whenever the king decreed something, rather than checking the king's power, they would just put their stamp on it. And that's how, where we get the phrase, the rubber stamp. But the idea that laws can only be created if they go back to natural law, which again is something that we can discern through scientific theory and draw philosophical conclusions based on, and therefore nobody's above natural law. Want to be, and this is a, a an example that I guess goes to illustrate this point. Gravity is a law that, well, again, was discovered by Isaac Newton. Now it existed before Isaac Newton, it existed as soon as the world was created, and it will continue to exist long after we're gone. Nobody but God can actually live outside of those laws here on Earth. Obviously there's zero gravity in space and all that stuff. But gravity continues to persist and exist for everybody. No matter if you're the, the, the poorest man in the world or the richest man in the world, you're beholden to this law of nature. 
Therefore, no one exists outside of the laws, and every law that is created uh, by the government must come back to natural law, and that nobody is above it just based on the authority of being a government official. Now, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is, to make this transition, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is a hypocritical man, I think someone whose ideas have really not proven themselves to work as well when acted out as, as John Locke. Obviously, Locke is the uh, founder of the modern English state, essentially, in terms of uh, their ethos. And uh, a lot of his works really founded the American Revolution, two states that in my eyes, are the freest nations on, on earth. Now, Jean-Jacques Rousseau did start the, or his ideas started a lot of the French Revolution, and he's the reason why Europe in general is more left of center than the rest of us, uh, because many of his ideas were carried out through the continent. But Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote a very interesting piece that I think is very uh, in, important here. It's called the, the social contract, and this will get us into the liberty discussion. Now, the social contract for uh, Rousseau is essentially the admission, so we all have something known as freedom, which means if you wanted to, you could get up, grab a knife, turn around, and stab your mother, mother in the throat, and there's nothing physically stopping you from doing that. But, of course, if everyone does whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, you can't live in a cohesive society that way. Therefore, we all give up, willingly give up, a little bit of our freedom in order to have liberty. So there's a philosophical distinction between freedom and liberty. Freedom is whatever... I want, when I want it, how I want to do it. Liberty is, there are certain inalienable rights that I have that have been given to me by God, but I will not do 60 in a school zone because your kids have the right to not be run over by my speeding car. Your kids have the right to life, liberty, and in the United States, the pursuit of happiness, or for John Locke, the pursuit of properties. So. Rousseau writes this landmark piece in the early 1700s about the social contract that had been referenced by philosophers, but nobody had put it down. And it's not written like a contract, but it's essentially discussing this point that we, in order to live in a civilized society, must give in a little bit. This doesn't mean give in to tyranny. This means obey the speed limit, do what we consider to be niceties in society. Now, Rousseau is a man who had nine children by the same woman, and against her will gave them all to orphanages and adoption agencies then proceeded to write a book on parenting, 
So I am not venerating him in the same way that I would venerate a man like John Locke, who so notoriously had a horrible temper and uh, was not very kind, not very politically correct, we'll put it that way. Of course, at his, in his day, there was a whole lot of controversies, especially in the New World with uh, the Indians and so forth. But one of the things that Rousseau discussed, and this is where he differs from Locke. So he agrees with Locke when it comes to empiricism. He agrees with Locke when it comes to the rights come from God. He agrees with Locke in the life, liberty, and pursuit of property or happiness. He agrees with Locke when it comes to government by consent. And he disagrees, and this is the biggest point, on the nature of the law. That Locke believes that natural law and our laws should parallel each other. That laws should exist to give the most liberty, again, ex accepting the social contract, laws exist to give the most liberty. Rousseau says laws exist to define and push the will of the people. Now this general will isn't spelled out. It's whatever happens that the, the common mob wants. So you can see in France how this plays out during the French Revolution. We'll see later on how this leads to almost a mob rule where in the United States after our revolution, uh, because we accepted more of the Lockean ideas, uh, we had a much stable, more, much more stable you know, first few years. But there's also one final actor I want to get to here. And his name really is, uh, almost needs no introduction. Louis XIV, uh, who the territory and colony of Louisiana is named after, the man who made France the most powerful nation in the world in the 16 and 1700s, the man who uh, built Versailles, which obviously still stands today, worth billions in modern dollars, Louis XIV is the opposite of all this. And he essentially, and the reason I put him in here, is that he represents the, the part of humanity that is the antithesis to all this. And what I believe is driving a lot of our elites today. Now he believed, and you couldn't tell him anything else, that he ruled with a divine right. And he was placed on the throne by God to carry out God's will for France. No one could convince him any other way. He, that's truly what he believed. That's what he was born into. That's what he was taught. He was not going to be told any different. So when the Marxists and revisionists come in and say, he was saying that for power and political reasons. There's a lot of things that Louis XIV did for power. This was not one of them. He truly 
believed that he was a vassal of God and therefore he wrote the laws that best suited the people because he was doing God's work. Uh, Louis XIV ruled with what he believed was the absolute authority. In addition to his divine right, he was the king and anything that he demanded of either his nobility or his people, they would accept. Again, because he's there from his divine right. The nobility in a lot of kingdoms uh, in this day and how it had worked in Europe since really even the medieval ages is that you'd have the king in the capital and you would have many lands that were considered uh, the land of the, of the crown or the land of the church where the king would have a reasonable say but it was essentially the local nobles, uh, those who owned land, those who had money, who exerted themselves in that era, uh, area. And this came in England, as we discussed. This actually grew into Parliament. But in places like France and Spain, this essentially grew into where the nobles had all this uh, regional power. And sometimes if they uh, allied with each other or discussed things, they could actually um, make demands of the king. And this to Louis XIV was an absolute uh, 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 inconceivable wrong and a failure on his duty as king if the nobles were ever allowed to discuss things with each other uh, that may interfere with his designs for France. Now, I don't want Louis to sound like he's some sort of dictator, Hitlerian figure that, you know, just says, I say it so it's true. Though he believed that, he was a patron of the arts. He believed that as king, it was his right, not his right, his duty to stay current on philosophical beliefs. So, notoriously, he hosted... Uh, hosted the, the controversial philosoph known as Voltaire, who has written a hilarious book, uh, Candide, which I think you can get for free on Amazon. I recommend it. It's like 50 pages. Great book, but uh, it's also pretty funny, um, especially for something written 300 years ago. Uh, uh, so if you ever want to sound smart to your friends, I totally recommend that book. But he... Louis, host, uh, Louis hosted Voltaire. He held court with something like a lock. He conversed with Isaac Newton. Louis XIV was not someone who believed in his own, though he was smart, though he was a great tactician, both in military and politically. Louis XIV did not think of himself as this great figure who essentially knew everything. And as soon as he demanded something, it would happen. He understood his own limitations, and he understood and believed that it was his job to help enlighten his own people. But by the same token, in his drive to bring the nobility to him, he built 
he spent he drove France into an incredible debt uh, earlier in his uh, career because and this is a good political move but he really had to make up for it and he made up for it by taking Dutch gold by attacking the Spanish and defeating them in, in a succession of wars and really helping to accelerate their decline he had to do he had to make up for some of this debt militarily which is one of the things that made him so great and so revered among the French people is because he brought them all these very quick victories and everyone kind of forgot about the debt thing and then of course once Versailles was built it just blew everything else out of the water um, and the reason for that is that was on purpose um, and that was to bring the nobles to a court and essentially lavish them with so much opulence that they would essentially forget that they once challenged the king. He got rid of their right to raise their own armies, which they had in France for many years. Um, and essentially, if and he would hold them all in this one just huge building. And if you've ever seen Versailles, um, it's it's unreal. He would plant people within uh, this big chateau, and so if, if if any nobles would start to get out of line, uh, and this is one of the reasons he had them in close proximity. He would invite them to, uh, you know, on a whim, just say, you know, uh, you get to watch the king dress. So essentially, this noble would be brought in with, uh, you know, some servants, and uh, Louis XIV would wake up in the morning, and he would bow to him, and he would go, and he would get dressed. And this seems kind of odd to us, but in those days, it was considered this great honor because the king was this great high and mighty figure, and Louis XIV, by the time Versailles had finished, had really established himself as the sole ruler of France. So it was as if you were, in some of these nobles, it was as though they were meeting the Pope. It was as though they were, whoever your greatest idol in the world is, you know, he invites you out to, you know, out to dinner or something. It would be that kind of experience. And so it really helped Louis quell all of the nobility to the point where they had forgotten their past role in the in ruling the regions in, in France. By the time he had died, uh, Louis had racked up some additional war debts, but he had also expanded the French military power, colonial power, to heights that had never seen before. They dominated trade. They dominated in the New World. They had taken advantage of the English in the New World. Notoriously, their native policy was essentially, if they get in our way, shoot them. So the natives were kind of hostile to the English, and the French, obviously being the English natural allies at this time, decided that their native policy was going to be to befriend the Indians. And so they made friends with tribes like the Iroquois and uh, the Huron and tribes in Canada. And that allowed them to peacefully or more peacefully colonize 
and therefore gain a whole lot of power in the new world uh, without necessarily having to go through some of the same hardships that the early Jamestown settlers did. And that's why, though France was late, quote-unquote, to the colonial game, under Louis they, they flourished. But his life, for everything that he did, for him being the greatest king in the history of kings, his life set up the fall of France and what eventually would, would lead to the greatest shift in European history, maybe until World War I, maybe even passing World War I. And so next time we're going to discuss the Founding Fathers uh, philosophy here in the United States and some of how where it differs from European philosophy and Lockean philosophy. And then we're going to go into the French Revolution and how that differs and how that affected our academics in those days and how it may even affect them these days. This has been the crime of the century and we're still working on deciphering this background. It's a long series, I know, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And at the end, we are going to figure out this crime of the century.